0: I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The high cost and long time it takes to develop drugs has people looking for alternative strategies for finding new treatments. One such approach is repurposing, finding new uses for already approved drugs. This is particularly compelling for rare diseases where small patient populations can serve as a disincentive to drug developers and the need for therapeutics is largely unmet. We spoke to Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer for Cures Within Reach, which launched the crowdsourcing platform Cure Accelerator to fund repurposing research rare diseases. Bloom discussed the benefits of repurposing, how the Cure Accelerator will work, and why he believes the initiative could help to build a new approach to repurposing research and developing treatments for rare diseases. Bruce, thanks for joining us.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking.
0: We're going to talk about using drug repurposing as a cost-effective way to accelerate the availability of new treatments for rare diseases, your organization, Cures Within Reach, and, and a new crowdsourcing platform to fund this work, Cure Accelerator. For people not familiar with Cures Within Reach, perhaps you can start there. What is it? How did it come about? What does it do?
1: Cures Within Reach is a global nonprofit that's headquarters in the Chicago area, And our mission is to drive more treatments to more patients more quickly using repurposing, which we define as using anything that's available from medicine or science and can be immediately incorporated into clinical care. So drugs, devices, diagnostics, nutraceuticals, generally regarded as safe compounds, and even things from integrative medicine, like uh, biofeedback, uh, Hatha Yoga. We even have a, a program called Dogs for Cures, which repurposes dogs and turns them into diabetic alert dogs to help patients who are having trouble controlling their uh, blood glucose. So w- we believe that that the importance is that because these things are already available, because they're almost always safe for human use uh, in a wide variety of, of patient populations and settings. We know their interactions with other therapies. If we can prove that they work, they can become immediately available for physicians to prescribe to their patients. And the cost of doing the research is low. The time of doing the research is short, and the cost to the patient of the eventual treatment is fairly inexpensive.
0: Is there any realistic way to compare the cost of doing the clinical work for repurposing a drug versus, say, the the traditional drug development process in terms of... T- there is.
1: Um, you know, the, the averages are, are for all drugs, but de novo drug development takes somewhere between 10 and 20 years and costs somewhere between $400 million and $4 billion, depending on what information you use and what you put into that. Drug repurposing, on the other hand, can be as inexpensive as a couple of hundred thousand dollars, which pays for a robust clinical trial. Those data are then published. Physicians see that publication, decide that because there's no other treatment for this rare disease, I'm going to try this off-label, and it works. And that can be as short as two years. So two years versus 10 to 20, dollars versus a billion even if you take a repurposed drug or device all the way through a regulatory process, it rarely takes more than three to five years, and it rarely costs more than $40 million. And so there are some huge time and cost savings, and the eventual cost to the patient afterwards is also comparably uh, cheap. When we repurposed the drug Seurolimus for the rare disease autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome, We spent less than $250,000. We took less than 30 months to do it. We published a clinical study that showed that 85% of the patients were in complete remission within 60 days, and some of those patients have been in complete remission for over six years now. And the cost of the drug was less than $5,000 a year, and the healthcare savings on a a per patient average was about $90,000 because reduce the symptoms so much that they were no longer hospitalized or needed to be on the other expensive palliative therapies that they were on.
0: Well, the idea of drug repurposing is not new. You you mentioned sirolimus. Are there some other good examples that have come about?
1: Absolutely. Um, In the rare disease area, there's a lot going on in this. Um, Besides the autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome being um, treated by sirolimus, We've repurposed it for five additional uh, rare pediatric autoimmune conditions, such as Evans syndrome, uh, pediatric lupus, uh, and a couple of other similar diseases. Um, we were involved in the repurposing of nutraceuticals for the rare disease familial dysautonomia. This took place at Fordham University. And we talk about nutraceuticals, we're talking about things you can usually buy at, you know, general nutrition centers, but that are, you know, very powerful biological uh, compounds. They've just never been approved as drugs. But in this case, it was um, EGCG, which is the sort of the the main component of green tea that seems to have uh, significant biological properties. Some tocotrienols, which are vitamins E, um, vitamin A, uh genistine from um that's from soy, all of these things together did some uh gene upregulation, uh solved some splicing defects, and in the disease familial dysautonomia we had patients that were literally on their deathbed and now are living long and fruitful lives. And um and that was all through repurposing of things that you could buy at the health food store. The the total protocol there on a weekly basis is less than $35. And yet these kids really have, their lives have completely changed because of this this research. And it happened so quickly from the time that gene was discovered to the time the first patients were able to um, get access to this new therapy was less than four years.
0: So on, on its face, repurposing seems like it would be a, a slam dunk, but I take it part of the problem is that in many cases, drug makers may not see it in their economic interest to pursue repurposing, particularly for rare diseases with small patient populations. What are some of the barriers to repurposing drugs?
1: Well, you you highlighted the, the biggest barrier, which is that there's no natural economic incentive for any commercial entity to want to repurpose a generic drug or a generic device, uh, especially for a rare disease. If you, if you try and repurpose a drug that is inexpensive and widely available from a number of manufacturers and you want to be able to make a a claim about it and and get labeling, you've got to take it through an FDA 505B2 process, which At a minimum is going to cost you somewhere between four and eight million dollars and more likely between eight and twenty million dollars. And then you have no control over where the patient buys the drug because it's available from so for so many people. Even though you're the only one that can market it, a physician can write off label and they do that all the time. And so we've set up a system where there's no incentive for anybody who has an idea and wants to make a profit to do this. Unless you're going to reformulate, re you know, change the dosage, do a combination. If you want to do it in the exact form that it's available and the exact dosage that it's available, you have to be philanthropic about it. And um, so that's, I would say, the biggest hurdle. The second biggest hurdle is when you do these things off-label, how do you make sure that physicians know about it and are competent to use it? And so getting the word out making sure you have a large enough clinical trial um, making sure that physicians have a place to get their questions answered uh is also a, you know a hurdle although i would say over the last 5 years as social media in medicine has really consolidated and um, and scaled up that's becoming less and less of an issue and then i would say that the final issue is we we know for a lot of these we're going to have to do this philanthropically still takes sometimes a number of years and a significant amount of money, and finding a philanthropy that can raise that kind of money and have the stick-to-itiveness over a three-to-five-or-seven-year period of time um, is, is a challenge, especially for a lot of these um, small diseases. And something that, that comes into play often is that um, sci- some of the small um disease specific nonprofits in the rare sector have really amazing scientists and clinicians that work for them and if they're not focused on drug repurposing when some of these ideas come in they're they're not necessarily seen as innovative because they're using old drugs you know, which we've known about for a long time and the innovation in repurposing is the speed and the cost and the ability to safely treat but that's not always the kind of innovation that's cherished by scientists, clinicians, and sometimes the funders on these boards. So helping them see that there's some different kind of innovation uh, in repurposing is one of the things that we do at Cures Within Reach.
0: Well, Cures Within Reach and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the Canadian government's health research investment agency, have partnered to create the Cure Accelerator, a new crowdsourcing platform to fund repurposing research for rare diseases. How did that partnership come about?
1: Partnership came about. We we actually had created Cure Accelerator with a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in June, and shortly thereafter, um, I made a trip up to uh, Canada to talk to some of our uh, funders and partner research institutions. And I happened to meet a couple of people from CIHR, and we got to talking about what they were doing as far as funding. Rare disease research, and we decided we would put this program together. So, uh, CIHR is going to fund half the budget, and Cures Within Reach as funders will fund the other half of the budget. It's two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, each year for three years. So, total of one hundred one point five million dollars to fund at least ten projects, all repurposing uh, drugs or other kinds of things for rare diseases and Cure Accelerator is going to be used as the portal through which initial proposals will be uh, sourced and reviewed. So our hope is to get um, a number of those through this program. Now one of the unique things about this partnership is we're also trying to um, spur connection between Canadian researchers and U.S. researchers, and so each of the projects that get funded needs to have a location in Canada and a location in the U.S. Um doesn't mean that patients need to be treated in both countries, but at least part of the research project needs to be done in both countries so that um, it, one of the reasons that we're doing this is so that we get uh, KOLs in both countries to be aware of what's going on. And when the projects are successful, we have entree to the, the clinician community in, in both countries so we can get the word out quickly.
0: And what's the actual mechanics of doing this? If someone wants to submit a project to the Cure Accelerator, how does that work?
1: To submit a project, you need to register for Cure Accelerator. Register Registration is free and takes about 30 seconds. Uh, you'd, you'd want to register as a researcher or as a clinician because those are the two user categories that are allowed to Publish proposals and then there's a a fairly short form letter of intent proposal, uh, um, function on the site and you just fill that in when you're all done. You hit publish and, uh, it goes to, to me to make sure it's all complete and then it will, um, be reviewed by a scientific review board that's comprised of scientists from CIHR, scientists from Cures Within Reach and some independent scientists and clinicians who are recommended by whoever is the principal investigator on the proposal.
0: And, and do certain types of projects have priority over others? Well, we
1: we certainly would love to be able to fund 10 proof of concept clinical trials, the things that are going to reach the patients the most quickly. And so uh, those, I guess would get priority. Uh, certainly projects that are, um, frugal with the budgets, so the, the, the lower the budgets, the more projects we can fund. And um, I'm sure that as our scientific review panels review these, those that have some clinical evidence, even case reports or anecdotal clinical evidence, or really strong scientific evidence underneath are, are likely to be the ones that are selected so that we have a high degree of success in the projects that we fund.
0: And in terms of overall goals, is there any goals in terms of funding or in terms of the number of projects?
1: Well, we'll have a minimum of 10 because the, the maximum amount of money that we'll give to any one project is $150,000 over three years. And since we're committing $1.5 million, that would be the minimum number. We also have a number of funders who are out there looking for additional funds for projects if any rare disease foundation was interested in putting up some money and partnering, we would help locate projects for a specific rare disease. And if those projects came in, uh, and, uh, passed muster in the scientific review group, um, those funds, those disease specific funds could be put towards those projects either, you know, alone or maybe leveraged with some funds that we have in the CIHR Cures Within Reach partnership.
0: You've said you believe this initiative could help build a new approach to repurposing research and developing treatments for rare disease with global implications. Why is that?
1: Well, one of the things that we've we found in the years that we've been doing this kind of repurposing research on a one-to-one basis is how hard it is to find all of the opportunities that are out in the world. I'll give you a quick example. So, the Elport Syndrome Foundation. Elport Syndrome is a a rare disease. We've been talking to them recently, and um, when they first asked us if we might be able to get involved with them, I went on PubMed and I looked. And if you put Elport Syndrome into PubMed, you get fifteen hundred publications. Now, when you talk to the Elport Syndrome Foundation. They believe there's a, you know, there's a handful of people that are involved in the world with, with Alport syndrome. But in one way or another, there's at least 1500 publications, many of which have multiple authors, that somehow have a connection to Alport syndrome. And we've got to find a way to connect to all of these people, find out what they know. If you additionally look at the, the two genes that seem to be identified in Alport syndrome, you put in the the pathways, targets, and some of the drugs that look like they might be helpful, and you start putting those into PubMed, now you're up to like 30,000 publications, which means there's lots of people out there that potentially have some really important information to share about Alport syndrome, and we don't know how to get a hold of them or what it is they know. And so putting a system in place that could start to create this... this, um, uh, stakeholder collaboration and, and getting people to to give what they, they know, especially around the world of rare diseases where sometimes people feel like they're working in such isolation, um, we think will be huge in changing the paradigm of how we figure out what to do to ameliorate a lot of the signs and symptoms of rare disease.
0: Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer for Cures Within Reach. Bruce, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, thank you. you can also find our podcast The Bio Report on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at Danny at Levinemediagroup.com.